The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God, we thank you for your word. 
And Father, I pray that you would grant me the ability to speak these words in a way that your spirit empowers and in a way that is true. Is beauty in the eye of the beholder. So I rolled out of bed this week about 5 a.m. without looking at the mirror. I grabbed my duffel bag and I headed straight to the Y. And checking in my Y pass, it's on my phone. Uh, so I went to use my facial recognition to open the phone. And try upon try, <laughs> as I looked at my phone, my face was not recognized. I looked so bad. I looked so disheveled, so hair out of sorts, so face sagging, tired, eyes sleeping slits that my phone didn't know who I was. Beauty was not in the eye of the beholding iPhone. My phone wasn't broken. My face was broken. There's beauty in the eye of the beholder. For this lame man in Acts 3, rolling out of his bed was a literal thing day in and day out. In his mother's womb, if an ultrasound tech would have beheld his body, the disfigurement was seen even then before he was born, as his tiny feet were kind of detached and hanging limp from his legs. From before birth, he was broken. He was broken. He was not beautiful. This man, he never heard the cheers of his parents as he took his first steps. That never happened. He never got to play out in the street with his pals. He was never able to hold a job because his feet wouldn't hold his body. He had to depend on other feet for him to function. He had to depend on other hands for a handout. He was broken. He was not beautiful. But where do we find this man in this passage? What's the name of the place where he is plopped day after day after day? A place called beautiful. The beautiful gate. It's the gate leading into the temple. The gate leading into the place where the God of heaven comes to meet the people of earth at the temple. Beautiful the gate was, figuratively and literally. One historian described this gate as in terms of its size. It's 75 feet tall and 60 feet wide. When I pictured it, when I would read this story, I'd picture kind of this little narrow door like that. No, no, this gate was huge. And it was covered with the sheen and the shine of bronze. It was gorgeous. If you can imagine the size of Lambeau Field's atrium entrance, that's about what you're looking at in terms of size of this beautiful gate. But the gate was also, like I said, spiritually beautiful because it's a place marking the entrance into the presence of the holy and living God. Kids, the way I would describe it for y'all would be this. It would be like the door going into Christmas morning. That's what that door was beautiful for. And laid at the entrance of this beautiful gate was this busted man. Every day, begging worshipers to have mercy on him. 
We don't know if in his adult years of routinely being left in front of the gate to beg, if he had yet made it into the temple. I'm not sure that he has. Depending how strict the temple officials were, his lameness might be considered a defect that's unacceptable to be brought into worship of a perfect God. But picture this broken, busted man at this beautiful gate and see in it a crossroads of gospel opportunity where beauty and broken meet together. When you think of beauty, the concept of beauty, what comes to mind? In our culture, it's more probably of a feminine concept, right? You might picture a beauty salon or makeup counters with big blown-up pictures of models and made-up people. That's what we might think of when we think of beauty or beautiful. But that's not what the Hebrew word for beauty really means. The word for beauty in Hebrew is more agricultural. It means when something is at its fullest season or most fruitful time, that's what beauty is. Like in Wisconsin, when the corn is as high as an elephant's eye, that's beauty. When the grain fields are blowing in the wind and you see all the fruit of the grain, that's beauty. When there's an apple tree that has these luscious red apples ready to be plucked, that's beauty. Or when your daughter is grown and about to be married, that's beauty. Or when a mother delivers a newborn child, that's beauty. As this man sat down below this beautiful gate, Luke is saying to us, be ready. There is a season here of fullness. There is a season here of bounty and of beauty like never before. Right now, look at it. It's here. That's what Luke is saying, why he mentions this beautiful gate. Beauty in the eye of the beholder, friends, it's such a tricky and troubled thing because beauty for us is so subjective. In our selfishness, in our sin, we become the ones who decide what's beautiful. Two people might look at a sunset and one remarks, oh, how glorious that sunset. And the other says, you know, I've seen better down in the Caribbean. Eve in the garden saw the forbidden fruit with the same word as beautiful. And what came next? It must be mine. It must be consumed. It's to be stolen and kind of kept to myself. But this broken man sitting at this beautiful gate, friends, it's not beautiful to us. If this were a Hallmark movie, the editors would try to Photoshop him out of the picture. Actually, in fact, in China, I don't know if you knew this, but when the Olympic Games are going on and all of the networks are there broadcasting everything that's going on in their big cities, do you know what they do? They usher out all of their homeless, all of their disabled, all of their mentally ill on buses to remote locations to make their host cities look more attractive and more beautiful. That's what we do. We have no place for broken in our pictures of beauty. 
So we try relentlessly to make our sagging faces look a little bit better, to make our living spaces look perfect, to make our arrangements of amazing graces the most beautiful they can be. And friends, there's nothing wrong with beautification unless it's a way to ignore or push out anything that's sinful or broken. I don't want to see it. For the people who had ankles that allowed them to walk through the beautiful gate too. This is what's going on for them when they see this man. There's a strange perversion of beauty that's going on here. Because what happens when they see him is they throw a penny or a nickel at him. And they feel something inside of them. Holy. Righteous. Good enough. Aren't you impressed, God? Did you see my beautiful act of righteousness there by giving that man a couple of cents? And it's not beautiful to God. One author writes that beauty is the battlefield where God and Satan contend for the hearts of man. On the flip side, when we consider our condition, if we were like the lame man we might think beauty is never going to come our way. We might feel completely helpless. We give up on beauty and we despair in our brokenness. We say, woe is me. We become Eeyores in our existence. Things will never change. They will always remain bleak and broken. I, my situation is helpless. This is never going to get any better. Beauty and brokenness have an impossibly hard time coexisting in our eyes. This is why we need to look at this passage in Acts 3 and see a remedy to our dilemma. And the remedy, friends, is this. Beauty must be in the eye of the Redeemer. So only look to Jesus to make all things new. Beauty must be in the eye of the Redeemer. So look only to Jesus to make all things new. There's two scenes in this passage. And the first scene of the passage involves eye contact with the Redeemer. Eye contact that brings about repair and restoration. And the second scene of the passage involves an averting eyes away from the Redeemer, which is going to bring judgment and destruction. So we'll start with the first scene, verses 1 to 10. Eye contact with the Redeemer brings repair and restoration. Peter and John, at this point, have seen firsthand what the Redeemer is able to do in repairing and restoring things. They've watched their friend Jesus from a distance bleed and suffocate as he promised he would as a sacrifice for sin. What a beautiful sight as Jesus blotted out not only sin like Peter's denials or John's puffed up pride, but every single sin they had ever committed beautifully blotted out on the cross. What a redemption. And then three days later, they walked into their friend's empty tomb, confused, only to turn back to the upper room to find within their walls a living, breathing, eating, nail-scarred, resurrected man standing in front of them. What a beautiful redemption. 
And then finally, more recently in this passage, they watched Jesus repair the breach between heaven and earth as he made his way to his throne room in heaven as sin and death is conquered and his enemies on earth become his footstool. He puts his feet down on earth as he's sitting in heaven. The Redeemer sent from heaven has made a broken earth beautiful again. That's what they've seen. In the Spirit of God, the power by which all of this happened didn't just stay up in heaven with Jesus. It was now living in Peter and John and 3,000 members of the body of Christ, his feet on earth. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead was living inside of them. So friends, as Peter and John made their way into the temple to worship and praise the Redeemer, and they came upon this lame guy asking for a penny or two, this poster child of brokenness amidst beauty of this gate, Peter does something. What does he do? He directed his gaze on him as did John. And the lame man, it says, he fixed his attention on them as well waiting to see what might come out of their coin purse. We're not told how long this exchange, this eye contact went on for, but the Greek verb used is stared intently or held his eyes on him. This is more than just a fleeting glance. This is soul-piercing eye contact. That's what's going on right now. And what's going on in this eye contact exchange between the apostles and this broken man is a thing of beauty. It's a pattern you find with Jesus and all of his healings in the gospel. Jesus sees a person. He sees a person. He says he looks intently upon people. And then he has compassion on those people. And then he speaks healing and honest words. What are Peter and John seeing in this man? What are they looking for? They're looking for and they're seeing faith. Luke 5.20, in the earlier gospel, Luke gives us a glimpse of what Jesus is seeing too. Jesus is preaching and teaching a Bible study with a group of friends in someone's house. And out from the roof... Friends, open up the roof and lower a lame man on a mat through the roof of the house. And the scripture says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Desperate men having faith that the only person able to heal their friend was a redeemer. And behind the eyes of Peter and John were the eyes of the Redeemer through the Spirit of God looking intently for faith. And faith was found, verse 16 of Acts 3 tells us. Faith in Jesus' name had made this man strong. Faith in Jesus' authority as a Redeemer had made this man strong. But what does that faith involve? What is that all about, that faith behind the eye contact of the apostles in this man? 
Many of you know when Bliss, I think I've told a lot of you this story, when Bliss and I first met, we had only known each other for a week or two, um, we agreed in our clinical psychology studies to participate in a research study on the use of silence in the counseling session. And part of this research study, part of the way that this guy had crafted his research was he had set up subjects to do something for him. We had to sit across from each other and stare at each other for 20 minutes without saying a word, without talking. 20 minutes of uninterrupted, silent eye contact. It was our first date, I tell people. But there was something about that first date that was pretty significant. And it's something you would experience too, I think, if you were to stare at someone for 20 minutes without talking. What my wife, my now wife, and her now husband saw, without planning this, were areas of brokenness and sinfulness and sadness that neither one of us were willing to say out loud at the time. But that came because of eye contact. As Peter and John are looking at this man, are having eye contact with this man, this man is allowing them to see his pain. To see the pain of being broken, of being lame, of being helpless. Allowing them to see the sin and the bitterness that creeps into a heart who has a condition like this on his worst days. Why, God? Why did you make me this way? He allows them to see it. You're cruel, God. He allows them to see it. The self-righteous pity that I have to deal with all the time of these guys that come around and drop coins on my mat and say, at least I'm not as bad off as that guy. Why did you make me this way? The anger, the resentment that comes with being treated as a charity case, the anger and resentment that comes with never being able to lift up your feet and walk. The man is then shown as they look at him By the light of Jesus' kind eyes behind Peter and John's eyes. The despair. You see the despair I'm in. But the Spirit of God also shows this man, this helpless sinner, a redeemer. You can save me. In the eye contact, whether it was 20 seconds or 20 minutes, The man saw who he was without a redeemer. He was condemned to death. But Jesus showed him who he could be with a redeemer, restored back to life. And he believed. He had faith in the redeemer, Jesus. And Luke says, Luke is a doctor. And Luke says this, Look at the word. This isn't Gospel of Mark. This is the Gospel of Luke. The word he uses is immediately. This is a doctor speaking. This is a medical profession speaking. Without any time elapsing, the physician said immediately. And then he uses, Luke uses these medical terms. It's the only time these terms are found in Scripture. In verse 7, it's like he says, The tibia and the fibula and the talus were moved back into position and then stabilized. Like that's what he says. He's, he's, he's like a doctor saying, this is exactly what happened. Immediately, this man was healed. And what does the man do? He leaps. Like the Isaiah passage that Karen read promises, when the season of beautiful comes, when the season of Messiah comes, the lame man will leap like a deer, praising God. 
He's leaping not only because his ankles are restored, he's leaping because his soul is restored. The beauty of being forgiven and freed from years and years of bondage, he's leaping. And the watching world is filled with wonder as they see undeniably a man who for years was lame on the ground, now running around the temple, through the beautiful gate, into the temple, because of the eye contact and the soul contact made between a redeemer and one who's redeemed. The question I've been asking as I've studied this passage this week, and I'll ask you too, is this. What would cause you to leap like that? What would cause you to leap like this man? The answer I would propose is probably not what you want to hear. And it's this, I have to allow Jesus to see me. And in seeing me, show me the deepest, sinful, broken recesses of my heart. I have to know how bad and desperate a condition I am in. In order to start leaping. Because as Dane Orberg writes in his book, Deeper, the further I allow the Spirit of God to take me in seeing my sinful, selfless, selfish, helpless state, like a trampoline, the further it will propel me to see the love and the beauty of a Savior come to spring me out of the pit. Friends, we need to have eye contact with our Redeemer in order for there to be a beautiful and glorious restoration and repair of us. Search me, O oh God, and know how wicked my heart is. I was talking to my bride today, actually this morning, and I was saying this. I think a midlife crisis, which is something I will confess I've gone through, I think a midlife crisis is less about your body getting older and more about feeling like I'm not as far along as I wanted to be as a Christian. I still struggle with sin. I still struggle with really ugly parts of myself. And at 50 years old, I want all that to be gone. I want it to be gone. I want to be better. I want to be this ideal Christ follower. But the Lord's not allowing that. He's actually showing me that I'm so much worse at 50 than I realized I was at 20. And what does that lead me to? The love of Christ and how much he loves me. Lock eyes with him. Have him search you so that he can spring you out of that pit. Doesn't keep us there. He springs us out. And saints, I want you also to know this. You have the same Redeemer behind all of your eyes as Peter and John did. So when you look at someone in a counseling office, when you look at someone at a spin class, <laughs> when you look at someone as you're repairing their entertainment system, for however long that look will allow, you are showing them a Redeemer. Look and see people's helplessness in their pit of despair and sin. Show them in your intently fixing your eyes on them a loving Redeemer who promises to spring anyone willing to grab onto Him out of the pit and make them new. They may not be healed of those conditions, 
but their soul can leap for joy. We're not guaranteed that the Spirit of the living God behind our eyes will lead people to want to see Jesus. And that's what the second scene of this passage shows us. As many avert their eyes away from the Redeemer to their own judgment and destruction. Quickly at this last point, here's what's happening. The crowd is running to Peter and John, thinking this was the result, verse 12 says, of Peter and John's spiritual powers or personal devotional life. And they found the trick or the secret to spiritual success. So let's get them to write a book so we can do what they did. That's what they're doing when they're running up to him. And Peter quickly shuts down their trying to make them into Christian celebrities. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. We're not writing a book about this. Don't put us on a platform. What he has them look intently at is not his eyes, but where does he direct them to the Scriptures? Something they very much prize. And he shows these Jewish men how their eyes are continually avoiding the evidence that's right in front of them. Your God, he says, the God of our peoples, past, present, and future, he glorified Jesus, his servant, that one you handed over, the one you denied knowing, the one you traded for a murderer. Jesus, that's the one. That's the Messiah age has come. That's who's done this. In a powerful choice of words in verse 15, Peter says this, the one who wrote you into existence, (laughs) the author of life you killed. But good news, he's not dead. He's alive. We've seen him firsthand, and so can you. Peter calls them out for averting their eyes, for avoiding seeing Christ for who he is, like the monkeys, the see no hear hear no evil, speak no evil monkeys. They're just covering their eyes. They're ignoring it. In verse 17, he says, you acted in ignorance, but God used your ignorance for good. Jesus suffered by your hands so sins could be taken care of. The Redeemer took the painting of a world that's blackened and used his blood to wash the painting and restore it back to its original state. And he pleads with them, repent, turn back your eyes to see what Scripture has said all along. Look at the priest who made himself the sacrifice. Look at the prophet who spoke better than Moses. Look at the king who was predicted by Samuel. Look to this Redeemer, he says. Call upon his name to save you. But friends, what what are they not wanting to see? They're not wanting to see the ugliness of their religious sin. Next week, we'll see the response from Peter's sermon and the persecution that would enter the church that comes with this. But people don't want to see their sin. And when they don't want to see their sin, they don't want to see Jesus. They don't want to see scriptures. They don't want to see it in you. Why? Because the thing Satan hates the most is for Jesus to upstage him with his beauty. They don't want to see that. They don't want to see beautiful. And Peter promises that the averting of eyes off the beauty of Jesus will lead to destruction and separation. Verse 23 says, Every soul that doesn't listen to this Redeemer, doesn't look to Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. He's saying to them the worst insult a Jew could imagine. You won't be considered one of God's people. If you don't listen to Jesus, you'll be the lame one who won't ever step foot through a beautiful gate into the presence of God. That will be you. And the worshipers in the temple, many of them, They believed, and we all believe this to some extent, believe that beauty can come from within ourselves. 
that we can plop a coin on a mat or in an offering jar. We can show up to church every time the doors are open. We can tithe our 10%. We can even know the scriptures like the back of our hands. And that's a beautiful thing. No, it's not. Filthy rags, the scripture says. Filthy rags is our righteousness. Repent of your righteousness, your religious righteousness. Turn your whole heart's orientation to Jesus, the holy and righteous one alone. How is that hard for you right now? I ask that you would ask the Lord to show you where that is, that even the good things that you're doing are vile to him. That's a hard one to admit. But even your motivations to do good things might have self attached to it. Ugh, no one wants to see that, but we need to see that. Jesus wants to make our soul into a thing of leaping beauty, but that cannot be done without a Redeemer, never without Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus to find what's promised in Him, a beautiful season of Messiah. A time of refreshing, Peter says, where it's not up to you and it never was. Repent and believe. Have faith and know the refreshment of this. Beauty is in the eye of the Redeemer, so look only to Jesus to make you new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son and for his opening of our eyes. Father, I, I don't want to Deny the fact that there may be those among us whose eyes are not opened, who are still living in the religious fog of thinking it's beautiful in their own works and in their own righteousness, and Lord, that's ugly to you, as it's ugly to what was going on in that temple. Help us to turn our eyes to you, to turn from these wicked yet looking righteous ways, and see in you a holy and righteous one, the only holy and righteous one. And Father, as we see that, as we understand that, as we go through the crisis of that, may it lead us to leaping, to leaping and jumping and praising God for how he saved a wretch like me. Do your work in us to help us to see who we truly are, to see how helpless and lame we are without Jesus but also to see his eyes and his hands and his arms lifting us out of that pit and saying, go see your father. Go into your father. Welcome home. May we leap in that welcome as we walk through the beautiful gate. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.